Talk Recorded live. Welcome to IAQ Radio, the voice of the indoor air quality industry. Yes, the rules have changed. Yes, the rules have changed. Good day, wherever you're listening from, and welcome to IAQ Radio, Indoor Air Quality Radio. Today is Friday, August 12th, 2011. Episode 217 is being broadcast live from our studio in McKees Rocks, PA. My name is Cliff Zlotnicker, the Z-Man. My co-host, Radio Joe Hughes, is on the road teaching a mold course in Virginia and will be joining us remotely. At the controls is our engineer, Austin Stone Cold Novak. Today's segments include the IQ Radio trivia question, an interview with guests Mark McLaughlin and Michael Pinto. We'll have some halftime announcements and a roundup with our technical director, Dr. Dietrich Weil. Check out our Facebook page, IAQ Radio Program. I write and post a blog after each show. Check it out at our website, www.iqradio.com. Now it's time to thank our marquee sponsors. Indoor Environment Connection, the newspaper for the IAQ industry. Subscriptions and advertising information are available at ieconnections.com. John Don Products, where cleaning, restoration, and abatement contractors buy their equipment and supplies. Visit them at www.johndon.com. Clean Facts and Cleaning and Maintenance Management Magazine, your source for cleaning and maintenance news. Visit them at cleanfacts.com and cmmonline.com. Please be sure to thank our sponsors for their support of IEQ Radio when you inquire about their products and services. To listen to the show live, follow the link on our invitation or go to our website, iaqradio.com. The show can be downloaded from our website and is available from iTunes. Don't forget, you can earn ABIHCM points, IICRC continuing education credits, or ACAC renewal credits by emailing Radio Joe and requesting the quiz. Radio Joe's email is joe.use at iaqtraining.com. Last but not least, please visit the IAQ Training Institute website for the schedule of the training courses you trust at iaqtraining.com. Win a cool prize by outcompeting fellow IQ Radio listeners and being the first person to correctly answer the IQ Radio trivia question each week. Submitting your answer is very easy. Email it to czlotnick at cs.com, or if you're listening live to the show, text in the answer via your computer. Congratulations. To Cassidy Kuchenbacher with Michaels Engineering in West Allis, Wisconsin, for being the first person to answer last week's trivia question. The answer was Penicillium Roqueforti as the mold used to make blue cheese. The IQ Radio trivia question for Friday, August 12th, has been sponsored by Triska, the Tri-State Restorers and Specialty Cleaners Association, who have been serving the needs of and advocating for their members for over 30 years. 
Triska is your link to industry training, certification, standards, and events. Now for this week's trivia question. Name the mushroom species responsible for the majority of fatal and or otherwise serious mushroom cases domestically and worldwide. Today's primary guest is Mark McLaughlin. Mark is VP of Field Operations for Restoral and has an extensive background in restoration, emergency management, and training. Mark worked as a full-time firefighter for almost 13 years in Cherokee County, Georgia. While employed there, he also worked for Service Master Restoration. While there, he saw a niche service that was not being serviced and decided to, go, to branch out on his own. In October of 2000, Mark formed Southeast Biorecovery a company that offered one service and one service only, which was crime scene cleaning. After several successful years in business, Mark was ready to leave public service. He found an opportunity to sell his business and join an existing company as director of field operations. Mark joined Remco Solutions and stayed in this position for two years. In 2008, Mark left Remco to help form Restoral Inc. in tandem with Reagan Tucker and Jason Fernandez. This is a restoration company established upon the foundation of an already successful construction business. During his years in the restoration business, Mark has also worked out of state on several large hurricanes, including Katrina, and has worked as a contract supervisor on large out-of-state jobs for local restoration firm Epic Response. Thank you for joining us, Mark. We have some intro music. Growing mold in my heart. Growing Also with us is Michael Pinto. Michael and his wife Susan are the proprietors of Wondermakers. Wondermakers Environmental helps people solve indoor environmental problems in their homes and workplaces. It is a family-owned company which has been in business since 1988. The firm prides itself on their professionalism, standard of excellence, and personalized service. What sets Wondermakers apart is their ability to communicate technical information in an understandable manner. So we should have with us Michael, we should have with us Mark, and we should have with us Radio Joe. Hello, Cliff. Hey, how are you, Joe? Do you want to start with the first question? I'd love to. Mark, welcome to IAQ Radio. Do we have you on the line? You do. Thanks for having us. Great, great to have you and Mike, and we'll bring Mike in as needed uh, because, we, you know, your work came to our attention, and I thought, you know, this is this is great stuff. We've got to get Mark on. But before we do, I wanted to, uh, you know, get a feel for how you got started in the indoor environmental contracting industry in general. You were a firefighter, and as I understand it, you did some part-time disaster restoration work? Correct. You know, most uh, firefighters need a, uh, a second job, and the schedule that you work as a firefighter facilitates that. Um, so... Uh, one of my uh, first part-time jobs I had uh, as a firefighter on my days off was working for a local uh, service master franchise. So that was my introduction to uh, the disaster response uh, industry. I would assume there were a lot of things that you learned during the firefighting that were applicable to the disaster recovery business and, and particularly to the bio-recovery business that you saw that niche and went into. Can you tell us a little bit about uh, what made you think, you know, this was a good niche to get into the biorecovery business? Sure. We did, a, you know, a couple of biorecovery cleanups at ServiceMaster, and, uh, you know, it, was, it wasn't something that came up often that we, that we had to deal with, but when it did, you know, it was hard to deal with, and we weren't really prepared and weren't sure, you know, what to do, so... Um, I, I did just did some local research and on the uh, you know the amount of saturation in the area as far as companies go and you know how often those types of services were needed and uh, you know I thought I could make a go of it so uh, I uh, approached uh, uh, my parents actually and uh, my uh, my father uh, believed in my plan and and thought I could do it so um, you know he gifted me the uh, the money I needed to start and uh, got it going. 
And you took that and turned it around a few years later and then started in the disaster restoration business. So I'm very curious. I wanted to get on to your certification and the certified mold professional program that you chose to work your way through and get your certification through. And while we were talking about that, I thought maybe we would ask uh, Mike Pinto because I know he teaches that course and, and he's uh, been teaching the certified mold professional training courses for quite a while. Maybe, Mike, if you wouldn't mind, we could say hello first and then you could give us a little rundown on what that program entails. Well, good morning, guys. Thanks for having me on. This is always a, a thrill and a pleasure. Great to have you, Mike. So what's the CMP program? Well, it's certified mold professional, and uh, because it's running through the Restoration Industry Association, it is the essentially the environmental equivalent to the certified restore or the mechanical hygiene specialist. So uh, essentially they set it up to be the, the top level professional uh, certification for that aspect of our industry. And it is a little bit different than some of the other uh, programs that are out there. I know that you teach uh, uh, different courses and IICRC and different uh, groups sponsor courses for uh, mold remediation. But this is a step higher. There's the technician's level class. There's the supervisor's class, which is similar to, uh, again, a lot of good training that's in the industry. But, but this is a third level of training. It's three days of additional training. And it uh, really helps to focus somebody on the broader pictures of the uh, mold remediation and, and kind of the contamination uh, aspects, the environmental contamination aspects of the restoration industry. Mike, how many certified mold professionals are there? In uh, six and a half years, we've got uh, 27, I think, 27 or 28. So it sounds like it's an exclusive club. I understand that as part of this program, and one of the things that differentiates these RIA certification programs from other industry certifications or accreditations is the fact that students need to do some sort of research project and publish a paper. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Well, that's close. It's a capstone project, and the, the capstone can take uh, many forms. It often takes the form of a research paper, but in the case of Mark here, I mean, this is applied research. He went out and uh, built rooms and contaminated with them with mold and then took samples and, and you know, did original research rather than, than just book research. But the, the capstone is just... Uh, a method where the student demonstrates some mastery of a, of a piece of the industry. And we've had a lot of very uh, interesting uh, capstones. Uh, in addition to this project, we've had people um, do training uh, videos for their uh, companies. And uh, certainly a lot of papers uh, do get written, but uh, it's not limited just to doing research papers. It's, it's just uh, something that shows that they have a mastery of the uh, you know, that aspect of the industry. Would you agree or disagree that this is really the toughest part uh, of any of these programs at RAA? You can get people through the additional training. They can successfully pass the course. But, you know, oftentimes they stumble, uh, they stall, and they don't get through it. Um, would you agree? Well, I think the proof is in the pudding. We've had uh, only about... 15% of the people who have completed the class have completed the capstone successfully. Right. And uh, it's, it's tough intentionally. It is designed so that people who do carry the certification of a mold professional are, are somebody who's special in the industry. And uh, I think that that uh, level of toughness is, is something that we're proud of, but at the same time, uh, a little bit disappointing that we don't get uh, more individuals put the effort into it after they put all the effort of going through the class and everything. So it, it really comes down to when they come through the class, sometimes they see what's involved in, in uh, developing a good uh, capstone project, and then everybody's busy, of course, these days as well. And uh, it just comes down to do they have the time to make it happen. Joe? Well, Mark, you chose to work on a project called Mold Remediation According to the Standard of Care. Does it work? Is it worth it? That's the full title of your 
your paper that I, I read here, and I was curious, what made you choose that subject, and how long did it take you to do this? Um, yeah, there were a lot of reasons to choose the subject. One, uh, primarily, is, is I just don't really like uh, theory and uh, hypothesis. You know, I like real hard uh, data that's been tested and proven, um, you know, and I, I had information and experience from, from other coursework and, and the years of experience I had, and then I, you know, I entered the CMP program, and, you know, by the time I was done with the supervisor's course, you know, I had all this new uh, information and, and a new kind of set of thoughts and, and processes and things I wanted to do and try that, you know, were inspired by the coursework and uh, at Wonder Makers that Michael taught, and um, you know, I, I wanted to test it. I want to know what what really worked. It all sounded great. What was I doing that was good? What were we doing that wasn't good? And you know, am I you know servicing our clients and and my you know my own technicians for that point you know correctly? Or are we keeping them all safe? So um, you know, I just wanted to put together a, a book of hard data to to prove or disprove. Uh, what was going on, um, and uh, you know that was the only way to do it was to do it myself. And how long did it take, Mark? Uh, it took several months. Um, <laughs> you know, the the first step was, um, you know, talking to our our ownership here at Restore All, and they were, you know, very gracious to, you know, invest the the money it took, um, you know, that it was going to take to do this. You know, it wasn't you know, we had to rent another warehouse and and build the rooms and there's labor and involved in materials and supplies and you know I had to you know talk to Michael and you know we, there was planning involved and you know we were obviously going to need his help um, with the sampling and and so you know from start to finish um, you know from concept to, to execution it it probably you know took about two and a half three months you know Mark, I have to jump in I have to jump in here too just I don't want to leave the listeners with a false impression that uh, one of the reasons that the capstone is so hard is because you have to invest uh, tons of money and 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 do uh, no. the level of research that Mark did. I mean, he he was fired up in class. This is something that he he wanted to do. Of course, we encouraged it, but uh, the reason I think that he's on the radio program is that this is well beyond even what our our uh, other uh, CMPs uh, you know put in in terms of at least in terms of the, the actual cost of it, to, to build uh, identical rooms, to contaminate them with mold, and then to do the controlled demolition and stuff in each one while taking samples. That obviously was was not hundreds of dollars. That's thousands of dollars. Yeah, you really anticipated my, my question because, I, uh, Michael, certainly you, you and Mark are the people that are most familiar with the project. Joe and I both read the capstone paper and saw... Uh, the, the photographs, but Mark, what I'd like you to do is just in detail, if you could, just kind of explain to the listeners exactly, you know, what you did, how big were the, the or first of all, how many of the rooms did you make, and how big were they, and what were they constructed of? Sure, sure, yeah, like, well, like I said, we, we rented an extra warehouse uh, next door to us that was vacant because we didn't have enough room to do it here. Um, and we built uh, we built four um, identical structures, you know, that were fully enclosed inside this warehouse. And um, uh, memory serves me correctly, each one of the the structures was uh, fourteen by fourteen. Uh, they were constructed of you know two by four you know, wood studs um, and uh, you know, normal uh, drywall construction, and uh, the flooring uh, and all of them was just bare. Um, you know, OSB, with the exception of one room, uh, we had a small amount of uh, uh, vinyl flooring uh, put in it. Um, but that's uh, that was the uh, the the room uh, construction. They were all built uh, identically. Each one had one open window, uh, and one each one had uh, an open doorway constructed as well. Joe and, and Mark, could you go into a little more detail about? We'll talk a minute about the sampling, but can you talk about what 
you did in each room once you got them built? I know you, you grew old. I know that's one of the questions Cliff has, but if you could tell us how you decided that you were going to perform certain engineering controls and work practices in each room and, and kind of describe for listeners what you did. Sure. Okay. Well, we had the four rooms, and, <clears throat> you know, we again, this is an area I consulted on Michael with because I had ideas that I wanted to test and, you know, just wanted to, you know, fine-tune that those things with him so he, he really helped me get the goals kind of, you know, finely tuned. Um, and uh, in one room, we, we we basically took room one and, you know, decided to, to do our standard uh, mold remediation, for lack of a better term, and that was we were going to, you know, use all the level of care that we would normally use on a, a remediation project, all the uh, engineering controls that we feel uh, to be appropriate, and, uh, you know, that would well, be... Yeah, you want to... Yeah, I'm sorry, I'm going to cut in there, but... I don't think everybody understands the level of uh, quality that uh, Restoral does on their jobs. And so this would be equivalent to a larger job. This is using the engineering controls that typically would be specified for projects greater than 100 square feet in terms of uh, decontamination chamber, negative pressure, uh, sure. isolation barriers, uh, uh, work practices that include HEPA vacuums and, and uh, shrouded tools, that sort of stuff. Correct. Yeah, in room one, as I was saying, that that would would be our standard response, and and we we treat every remediation job the same way. So, you know, we do uh, we did have a you know containment set up. Uh, we we do use a, a single stage uh, decon chamber on every project. Um, you know, as far as work practices go, negative air, um, PPE, of course, for uh, for the uh, uh, the workers, um, you know, all the all the tools are in a specific staging area. Um, inside the work area, uh, in room one, you know, we followed uh, our standard uh, procedures, which would be, you know, we initially have uh, uh, a vacuum to remove as much, uh, you know, the contamination as we can. Um, any uh, cutting that is done is done with dust control uh, tools, whether it be a, a roto zip or a uh, cat tool or cat saw, uh, they have HEPA vacuum attachments is to try to uh, minimize the uh, the dust uh, release and stirring up everything in the working area. And we cut and bag in very small amounts. We don't we don't let debris uh, pile up on the floor. As soon as it's cut, uh, it goes immediately into a bag. Um, the bag is uh, actually a HEPA vacuum sealed, uh, shrink wrap uh, for for lack of a better term. And then it's actually a, a rinsed off uh, from dust and, a, and whatever might be claimed to it is rinsed off with an antimicrobial uh, before it passes through uh, decon and goes out uh, into, the, into the trash to be hauled off. And then uh, once demolition is complete, we'd have the vacuum again and, uh, and then uh, proceed with the wipe down. <clears throat> so um, that's what we did in room one. Uh, room uh uh, two, uh, we we totally abandoned all our engineering controls, basically, except that stuff that we needed for safety. So we still had up the decon and uh, uh, the uh, single-stage decon and the containment, negative air, and PPE, but we abandoned uh, our standard of care in there for, for, uh, for demolition. Uh, we, we just kind of, you know, we used sawzalls and hand saws and hammers, um, we, you know, we let debris pile up on the floor. Um, we didn't uh, bother to, to wash down the uh, the trash uh, containers before they left the uh, the uh, the decon chamber. And so we just kind of really took our engineering controls that we felt were important uh, for the project, and we threw them out the window. Um, and that was what we did in our our second room. In our third room, we followed the same protocols. The first room where we were you know, did our, our standard kind of operating procedure for remediation. And all, the only thing we changed in that room was we changed uh, the, the uh, chemical that we were using for uh, the wipe down and the cleaning. And that was just simply to see, you know, does this really make a difference? Is this going to change the, the numbers or, or make any huge noticeable difference in, in the sample results? And then in the uh, 
you know, the last room uh, was the most different. Uh, we didn't put up any uh, containment uh, and no negative air. Uh, the only thing we used in there was PPE, and that was because in that room we grew less than 10 square feet of visible mold. Uh, we wanted to take air samples inside and outside of the room uh, during the work uh, to see uh, what really happened when you did mold remediation on a, uh, an area of less than 10 visible square feet without any engineering controls uh, in, set up in the room. Mike. Which is essentially what the uh, you know the guidelines, many of the guidelines, particularly New York City guidelines, tell you you can do. Michael, you have uh, condensed down, and I think that's one of the real gifts that you have is you know putting together charts where you can compare uh, you know different guidelines and different standards and different sources of, of information, and oftentimes you know pointing out the the similarities and. You know, making something that is complex uh, easier for people to understand. You've condensed down uh, mold remediation to three priorities. Could you tell listeners what the three priorities are? Sure. When we uh, teach our classes at all levels, starting at the technician but moving all the way up, we emphasize something that we think is pretty simple, and that is your first priority has to be to protect yourself and your workers. Uh, this is not the Army. This is not uh, you know, a war zone. You don't throw yourself on a grenade. We're smart enough to do the work in such a way that we can protect ourselves. So that's our first priority is we protect ourselves and our workers. And then if you're doing that right, that generally leads you to protect the occupants of the building as well. And I know that I'll get some flack from people who say, oh, no, your first priority has to be to protect the occupants of the building. They're the ones who could be the most sensitized and all of that. And I would just go back again and say, you know, if we're not protecting ourselves, uh, then how are we expected to protect the occupants? And then last but not least, the, the third priority is it's our job to protect the building. You know, there's all that silly talk uh, still today about buildings can't be saved and, you know, mold is too much and we have to knock them down and that sort of stuff. And, and uh, you know, we're mold remediation professionals. We're able to save buildings and do it in such a way that we don't hurt ourselves and don't hurt the occupants. So uh, in a nutshell, it's protect yourself and your crew, protect the occupants, and then protect the structure and the contents. Okay. Joe, I think it's probably a good place to stop. What do you think? Hey, you know, uh, we've got about two minutes before halftime, Cliff. Is that yeah. what you say? Yeah, we can either stop now or, or we can go for two, whatever you want. Let me just ask Mark one more uh, clarification on the engineering controls because that then after halftime I think we could go into the results. But um, on your engineering controls, Mark, with respect to the negative air and the negative air containment, what size air filtration device were you using for your negative air machines? On this project, uh, we were using a 1,000 uh, CFM machine. And was that a variable speed, or was just it was always at a thousand? It's a variable speed machine. So you had it turned. I mean, you have a ballpark idea of what it was on, and, and the number of cubic feet per minute was it all the way up, part way down. No, it was on. It was. It was all the way down. It was on low. So, okay. and uh, you know, you know as well as I do that the ratings for those machines aren't always accurate. But you know, that's uh, that's what a the low setting should be set for. And then with respect to the, the products you were using, I read that, that one of them, and I don't, I don't mind using brand names on it, was Microband, but I couldn't tell which type of Microband. Was it the Disinfectant Spray Plus or what people know as the QGC? Do you know off the top of your head which of it was? It's the Disinfectant Spray, ready to use. And then when you did the other containment where you wiped down with a different product, that was a... A peroxide-based product, as I understand it. That's correct. Okay, great, great. I just wanted to kind of set the parameters a little bit. And then I also wanted to kind of point out to listeners, as I understand it, Mark, and I want to make sure I'm accurate here with both you and Mike, that on the area where you did less than 10 square feet, and that would be similar guidelines, whether you're following EPA, OSHA, New York City, they're all pretty similar on less than 10 square feet, but you did use a HEPA vacuum in that area, as I understand it. Is that accurate? 
Yes, correct. And that was actually another thing you did that was really above and beyond what's required, what's recommended or suggested in those three documents, as I understand. And Mike, would that be accurate in your, as your understanding? Well, it certainly would be accurate, but I want to again clarify. I think uh, you used that for your final cleaning so that we could get it clean at the end. Uh, okay. I don't, I don't believe that, Mark, that your crew did the um, pre-vacuuming in that fourth room, did they? No, they did, and, the, and when they finished demolition and had a mess on the floor, they actually used a broom and a dustpan to clean up the bulk um, of the mess. And then we, Michael's correct, we did just, we finished, uh, merely finished with the HEPA vacuum. Yeah, because eventually they had to get to a point where they had to turn the, the warehouse back to the owner. <laughs> the warehouse <laughs> had to be clean. One of the things we wanted to clarify, I'm sure some people, you know, listening, going, whoa, whoa, wait a minute. <laughs> so, yeah, because there was right. some, there was contamination that came out of that fourth one, and and uh, like I said, uh, we were careful to make sure that we weren't gonna, you know, just mess it up and leave. <laughs> Great. Well, thanks, guys. We're, we're going to break for halftime. Cliff, does that sound good to you? And then good. we'll come back for the second half. Sounds good. association sponsors are the National Air Duct Cleaners Association, NADCA, is the leading authority for information on HVAC inspection, cleaning, and restoration. Visit NADCA at www.nadca.com. The Indoor Air Quality Association, a nonprofit, multidisciplinary organization dedicated to promoting the exchange of indoor environmental information through education and research. Visit them at iaqa.org. And thanks to our advertisers, Gray Wolf Sensing Solutions, who use advanced sensor software technology and embedded computers to provide superior environmental test instrumentation. Visit them at wolfsense.com. Legends Environmental Insurance Services, the experts in insurance for environmental and consultants and contractors for over 20 years. Learn about them at legends-enviro.com. And, of course, our marquee sponsors, Indoor Environment Connections, the newspaper for the IAQ industry, subscriptions, and advertising information available at ieconnections.com. John Don Products, where restoration and abatement contractors shop. Visit them at johndon.com. And, of course, Clean Facts and Cleaning and Maintenance Management Magazine, your source for cleaning and maintenance news. Visit them at cleanfactswithanx.com and cmmonline.com. Please be sure to thank our sponsors for their support of IQ Radio when you inquire about their products and services. Okay, Joe, you want to start? You know, uh, I do, Cliff, I want to get a ballpark. You may get a little background noise. I had to leave the room for a moment, but uh, I wanted to ask either Mark or Mike, whichever, how many samples did you take and what type of samples did you take during the remediation? Well, I guess it was before, during, and after the remediation. Yeah, I'll handle this one. Uh, remember I mentioned before that uh, on a capstone, we don't normally force people to spend thousands of dollars, and, and uh, Mark's company, Restore All, was investing a considerable amount of money in the uh, setup and in the actual work uh, practices and things. And so uh, Wondermaker stepped in and said, you know, if you're going to do that, if you're going to put that much into, uh, you know, sharing this information with the industry, then we're going to go ahead and, and uh, do the sample analysis for you. And uh, in between the four rooms and trying to take samples sequentially as they went through the different process and everything, we ended up with uh, just about 60 samples so that we had... Uh, you know, approximately 15 for each of the rooms. And uh, at this point, we weren't so concerned about uh, indoor-outdoor comparisons because we just wanted to see uh, what we started with and then how we progressed through the process. And they were all uh, air samples using uh, aerosol cassettes uh, was the, the chosen method. And we ran those at uh, 15 liters for 15 minutes so that at the pre-end and the post-end, uh, where we hoped that there would be low spore concentrations, we would have enough volume to get good numbers, 
even though we suspected, and, and indeed what happened is uh, during the demo end and everything, uh, rather than varying the sample time and then having that extra variable in there, we just we ran the same 15 minutes and then uh, kind of fought our way through the analysis with all of the extra particulate and spores and everything on there. And I guess just to clarify for listeners, once again, the goal of the project wasn't to see which process necessarily led to clearance or completion of the project, whatever terminology people use, but your main concern was to see whether the engineering controls worked and how well they worked? Exactly. Uh, you know, it's funny I, that you brought that up because I talked to Michael about this last night, is that I wasn't sure, you know, really had no idea and didn't care if we passed, you know, any of the, the, the clearance sampling. You know, we were going to do it because I wanted to have it done before we disassembled all those rooms. You know, we we spoke about the concern of, you know, contaminating the warehouse that we had rented to work in. But, you know, this this was not to, to you know, make clearance. I think that, you know, one of the reasons I wanted to do this is because so much talk in remediation, you know, there's webinars and courses, you know, everything is, you know, past, you know, post-verification on your first try, you know, and not always possible. I was more concerned, not about passing, but what what's going on during the project, and what are we doing, you know, to the structure and the occupants around it and our workers. You know, it's you know there's there's no defined exposure limit, so there's no way to test it per se. You know, if you're on an asbestos project, you know, there's constant you know air sampling and monitoring and checking for safety, and you know if the counts get too high. You know, you you shut things down and you know change your you know your your work practices uh, to you know reduce the fiber count if you're endangering your workers. We don't have that in mold, and and we don't know the true limitations of, of the PPE or what's getting through or what we're doing. So I wanted to, to test it and see you know what are what difference are these engineering controls making and you know what is the environment like during uh, you know different steps of a remediation. Uh, project, you know, for our workers inside. And and for me, I think uh, it validated a suspicion that I had when Mark came and said he wanted to try this different stuff, some of the questions we talked about, some of the things that even when I teach in class and I tell the students, uh, you know, you can eventually, we can get clearance on all these projects. It's just how much time and effort you want to put into it and how much risk are you going to put people at as you're going through the process? And eventually you can do enough air scrubbing and enough cleaning that you can get the rooms clean. The question in my mind is, what are you doing to yourself and to the environment while that process is going on? And uh, indeed, I think there's some validation here that ultimately you can get stuff clean, but there's danger in doing that if you're not following the right steps, if you're just figuring, well, I'll just clean it all at the end because that's, you know, for some contractors, they think that that's faster or that's easier or something like that. I'll just make a big mess. I'll just rip this stuff out of there, and then I'll just clean it all up at the end, and I'll be good. And uh, I think the, the numbers that we're seeing here are showing you that, well, that may be good for the house eventually, but it's sure not good for your workers in terms of potential exposure. Mark. You know, that was one of the things that interested me. Go ahead, Cliff. I'm sorry. Well, what I wanted to do is I, I wanted to, you know, with this project, you certainly had a deadline. Uh, you had to be out of the rental space in in a certain amount of time, and you had allotted a certain amount of time to, to do the project. Tell me a little bit about how you grew the mold and any challenges that you encountered growing the mold. Yeah, this is funny because I thought it would be, pretty simple to grow mold. Um, you know, I just thought, hey, we just get the sheetrock wet and it'll grow. You know, it seemed to, you know, be so easy to, for it to grow in the case of a, you know, a naturally occurring, you know, water loss that we would, might visit that I thought it'd be easy to grow mold here. So again, I took some pointers from Michael, you know, he suggested, you know, hey, let's, re let's install the drywall backwards so that, you know, that the paper is, you know, facing out and that'll speed it up. And, you know, we might be able to use uh, some Gatorade to really feed it. And, you know, we we tried for it probably took you know almost 30 days trying to grow mold, and we'd go in you know with a pump sprayer and 
you know, we'd wet it down, you know, the walls. We we put a tape line basically, and everything below that tape line, we wanted to grow mold on, and we, you know, we'd use water, we'd use Gatorade, and we we wet it, you know, in, in most cases two times a day, and we just couldn't get it wet uh, wet enough and get it to stay wet, uh, you know, long enough to grow mold. Um, and we happen to have wonder makers um, uh, in town uh, for a week uh, teaching an asbestos uh, course for us. And, uh, uh, you know, immediately uh, when Michael got here, I asked him to come next door and look and, you know, figure out what the problem was. Uh, number one, it, it was winter here, so it was you know, very cold and very dry, very low humidity. Uh, and and we ran up a big gas bill. We had the you know the gas warehouse heater over there cranked up, you know, trying to keep that space warm. Um, but we we just simply wound up we weren't getting it wet enough, and it had too much airflow. Um, so um, you know Michael said, hey, you know the pump sprayer is going to go you know drag a garden hose in there. And so we we started really wetting it. He also suggested you know in closing. Uh, the doors and windows with plastic, and, and even the, you know, if we found air gaps, you know, in the, in the construction rails, wrapping that in plastic, and just really sealing it up tight and letting the, the humidity have a chance to build, and you know, stopping that uh, evaporation that was occurring just in the natural airflow. And uh, you know, once we did that, um, we we got mold pretty quickly. Which I think is an unintended benefit from the study because we always have people ask us, you know, well, why is mold such a big problem today, et cetera, et cetera. And uh, the reality is we uh, took that room that was uh, constructed in, you know, in an old style, if you will, in the 1950s and 60s uh, where you would do something without a house wrap and put a fair amount of water in it for a fair amount of time. But, you know, if you have the right conditions outside, you just have enough natural airflow. They didn't even have HVAC or anything running in each unit or anything like that to push air around, but just the natural airflow uh, was allowing that to dry out and keep the mold from going. And the minute that they put on essentially what would be like a house wrap so that the moisture couldn't diffuse out through the outer skin of the, of the rooms, uh, boom, within a few days, they had mold, and uh, that, you know it's a kind of a lesson to us. Those house wraps uh, sure help us with our energy efficiency and everything. But man, uh, if you don't take care of water problems pretty quickly, that's that's why we're seeing the the big change these days in terms of how the houses are built. Gentlemen, why don't we uh, review for the listeners? It's getting to be about twelve forty-three. We like to go to round up around ten two, and uh, I think we need to get to the meat and potatoes here, uh, Mike or Mark, which of you would like to give listeners some idea of what the sample results were? I know we have a couple text questions from listeners, and we will get to those in a moment. I think Mike, uh, yeah, I think <laughs> Mike, Mike, I'll let you take that. <laughs> handle this. Just real quickly, uh, I want to start with the one I think that surprised us the most or, or validated some of our concerns, which is a very small amount of mold in that fourth unit, uh, the air samples to start with very low in the hundreds, like five and three and five hundred inside the work area and inside the the uh, uh, unit there. And the minute that they started doing demo on a small amount of mold, those numbers jumped up into like 128,000. And and just outside the work area, a few feet outside the work area, without any sort of contamination, because that's uh, what the New York City guidelines say specifically. I looked it up again this morning. For less than 10 square feet, they have a statement in there that says containment is not necessary. And outside the door of that room where he was working, uh, 68,000 spores per cubic meter. Those are those are big numbers. Um, of course, not nearly as big as what happened when we were in the uh, other three areas where they had um, uh, heavy mold concentrations, where you're looking into the you know 100 square feet or, of uh, moldy material and stuff. There we were getting counts uh, uh, from the low thousands all the way up to two million, uh, two million two hundred thousand was the highest that we got during the uh, work inside the. Um, uh, unit two, where they weren't using the right work practices. They still had engineering controls, still had airflow going, but uh, 
2,200,000 spore counts per cubic meter. Uh, it's a good thing he had his people in uh, powered air purifying respirators on that one. And what were the levels like in the room where they were using their standard operating procedure and removing things carefully, Mike? Uh, 10 to 20 times less, so still big. I mean, you're still at 165,000 or 105,000 uh, during those particular operations. But uh, again, 165,000 versus 2 million, that's a, that's a good good difference. And then if you could, for listeners, what was the, was there any difference when you changed the product you used to do the wet wiping? Well, that one's a little bit um, harder uh, because we started, although Mark was trying to be identical in terms of the three rooms, in terms of how much mold he wanted to grow in the three rooms, because of the um, uh, difficulty that he had and then uh, trying to uh, force the growth at the end there by closing everything up uh, to meet the deadline to get the warehouse back to the owner and everything. We ended up with substantially more mold in Unit 3 where they used the hydrogen peroxide cleaner as compared to Unit 1 where they used the other. So the numbers are a little bit different, but percentage-wise, uh, if you look at it from a percentage of where they started, how much it grew while they did their work, and then how it went back down as they did their cleaning and everything, it, it actually is pretty uh, pretty close. So the um, if you look past the actual raw numbers, it was uh, our belief that the, the cleaning solution was not nearly as important as the work practices themselves. Look, do you want to grab a couple of these text questions? Or? Sure, sure. Yeah, okay, uh, the first one's addressed to Mark. Mark, are your findings going to impact how remediation contractors treat mold? Or will your data challenge the EPA, New York City standards, IICRC, S500, et cetera? Um, well, I think the findings definitely challenge, you know, any any publication or uh, any, you know, any government uh, entity or body that says that it's okay to do 10 square feet or less of visible mold without, you know, PPE or engineering controls. Uh, you know, uh, we weren't, you know, intentionally and purposely going out and, you know, stirring the pot, but, you know, the, the data is what the data is, and it, it is proven that that is incorrect, and then you, you do put not just your your workers, but, you know, any surrounding occupants and the structure itself uh, at risk if you perform small projects uh, in that way. So uh, that's, that's why we treat them all the same, and I would think that you know, everybody else should do the same. So going to the contractors, you know, it obviously, I don't decide uh, if this changes how contractors do their work, but uh, I would certainly expect that any responsible contractor that had access to this information would use it to evaluate uh, their, uh, their current work practices. Okay, Mike, this is a two-part question. Uh, the first part is why do aerosol sampling? And aerosol in, in uh, regards to the cassette or just air sampling as a means of... No, aerosol. You know, why use, I guess, aerosol? I, I can't tell. The, the oh. question is why do... Yeah, I think, yeah, yeah that's just... Thing, I think you'll get that. Okay, why do aerosol sampling? Can't you get too, too much dust obscuring spores and get enormous results? Yeah, well, I think that uh, there's going to be limitations on any particular sampling methodology and piece of equipment, and you just have to uh, make a choice as to which one you want to use. We're comfortable and familiar with that one. doesn't necessarily mean that it's the only one or even the best. It just means that that's what we used, and, and you have to control your variables somehow in these projects, and so uh, you make a choice and you move forward, and you hope that you get usable data, and we did. So uh, I think the choice was an okay one. Okay. Joe. Joe, you want to do roundup? Oh, we might have lost Joe. I'm not sure. Do roundup. Can I add one other thing real quick? Oh, sure. Go ahead, Mike. I just think that uh, somebody asked the question earlier of Mark, you know, is this going to challenge the, the 
uh, guidelines and things. And yes, certainly on the low end, I think it's going to challenge it. But I think it also is somewhat controversial from the standpoint of, uh, you know, the different uh, product manufacturers and everything always say that their product is the best. And, you know, the, the takeaway message that we ended up with was sometimes it's not so much the product as much as it is the setup and the work practices. And uh, if, if you don't have some general engineering controls and if you're not using very good work practices and really being focused on keeping your dust levels down, like Mark was talking about, wiping uh, disposal bags and that sort of stuff, you can really make a difference in terms of uh, you know, spreading contamination to other areas of the building. So, you know, we'll see how that well, plays out I, I, manufacturers. I'd like to respond to the comment on the chemicals being the same. Uh, I disagree with you in, in only one area. Uh, knowing a little, well, knowing a lot about the microband formulation, knowing something about the uh, peroxide formulation that was used in this particular situation. Uh, both of those products have antimicrobial capability. They've got wetting agents. They've got cleaning properties, and uh, so on and so forth. And I think that that detergent and you know the ability to help penetrate surfaces and the wetting agents and so on and so forth would make a difference if he had just taken something like bleach and water. And I, that's just my opinion that either that either of the two products that Mark used in my opinion, would have been superior to just using uh, household bleach and water uh, because you don't have the detergents and all the other things. But in any event, I'll, I'll let you respond to it, Mike, if you want. Yeah, uh, my response is, hey, that's a, a great suggestion. And uh, do you want to sponsor the next round of uh, building and sampling? Well, I'm not in that business anymore, but I may be again. You never know. <laughs> you never know. Okay. I think, no, I think uh, go ahead. Cliff, I'm sorry, I just wanted to last comment here. I think that's exactly the sort of questions and the sort of things that Mark was trying to get to, is that we hear these things all the time, and, and as we were both looking, both as an instructor and a student, we couldn't find hard data that supported some of this stuff. And I just think that more contractors need to take the initiative to do this sort of stuff because it really does have an impact on our industry. And these are important questions that we should be answering. Right. I agree with you. I agree with you. All right. Let's go to Roundup. Move them on, hit them up, hit them up. Move them on, move them on, hit them up, raw high. Cut them out, ride them in, ride them in, let them out, cut them out, ride them in, raw Okay, I think, uh, Joe, we have you back. Uh, I guess we're still having, I guess Joe's, we're losing Joe for some reason. Bring Dieter on. Dieter? <laughs> Questions or comments, Dieter? Oh, of course. <laughs> You know me. Um, anyway, I think it's, it's, it's kind of interesting. The one thing we have to keep in mind, <clears throat> we got data from four structures, not 400, and there's nothing wrong with it. I mean, you've got to start somewhere. Yeah, there is no doubt about that. And, and I said that years ago when I started in this business, that if you have 10 square feet, which is what, an area of one by 10, I know that, or three by three approximately. Um, and there is active mold growth on there. Millions, uh, not millions, billions of mold spores are generated from that area over there. Now we, we found out if you have ventilation, it's going to go down. Of course, you're diluting the air, no doubt about that. And um, if you use good working techniques, you can reduce the dust that you are generating from there. And in this case, dust equal mold spores. Uh, the other thing which is very interesting, I said that on another show, or maybe twice before, 
maybe there is nothing wrong with my house. My house was built 35 years ago. There is no wrap, uh, house wrap on it, and it leaks like a sieve. But I have no more growth anywhere in the house. <laughs> my... <coughs> My electric bill during the summer and my gas bill during the winter is a little bit higher, but I think I'm kind of happy. Interestingly, I should take a couple of uh, uh, spore samples over here the next time I do that. The other thing which is also interesting, and I'm looking at it right now, there is something called the American Academy of Allergy, Asthma, and Immunology, A-A-A-A-I. And you can go to their website, which is, by the way, an excellent website. Um, it's aaaai.org, org, and they are sponsoring mold counts all over the country, including um, Puerto Rico, which I use when I have a job in St. Thomas. It's right next door. And here's an interesting thing. And... Um, in Pittsburgh, I'm monitoring that. I get kind of Monday, Wednesday, and Friday. I just got one today. Three times a week, twice a week, I get the mold counts in Pittsburgh. And over the last, I would say, eight weeks at least, they were in the high range. And according to AAAAI, the high range goes from 13,000 to 50,000. Which is, uh, you know, significant. I mean, there is uh, there, it's something out there. And if I would have taken in my backyard the other day a sample, it would have been probably in the millions. <laughs> For some reason, I don't know why, what, when, and where, and on my, my grass was white with hundreds of thousands of little mushrooms I'd say about a half an inch high with a cap, quarter of an inch in diameter or thereabouts. I mean, all over the place. And they're not there anymore. They, 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 they came and went. So I think, I think we learned something today, that if you're a sloppy worker, you expose yourself and you shouldn't do that. And um, again, I'm very much for ventilation all aspects of ventilation, industrial ventilation, house ventilation, and ventilation during asbestos or mold or lead removal, doesn't matter to me. Uh, good ventilation helps a lot. And thank God for HEPA vacuum cleaners or HEPA filter equipped vacuum cleaners. They are doing a fabulous job. It's expensive. It's a little bit more than the uh, whatever, a craftsman or something like that. But if done correctly, it does do the job, and it does do the job correctly. And like I said, I'm not criticizing uh, uh, Michael and Mark over here, but uh, I think we are on the right track. And it said, hey, fellows, if you have an area 10 square, 10 square feet or thereabouts, uh, that is not something that is completely insignificant, and you don't have to worry about anything. That is not true. It's like, you know, Oh, just a handful of asbestos isn't all that bad. Well, it is bad. <laughs> there are millions and billions of fibers in there. So I think, I think if nothing else, we got to realize that these little buggers there, we call them mold spores, in the air, which we actually can't see, that they are there in significant numbers. So that's about it. And I thought... I, I, last week I was like five minutes late. I didn't hear the trivia question. And I thought that um, blue cheese is made from uh, uh, Penicillium rock 40E. That is a different species of Penicillium, which probably means that some blue cheeses made in Italy are different from those made in Germany, from France, and from Wisconsin. So they may have a different Penicillium basically doing the same thing. So that is interesting to me. So I was taught Penicillium Rock 40 by Harrogate Birch. So I remember that one from Rockford Cheese and so on. But anyway, I shut up. And I think, good job. I think, I think we learned something over here. 
that uh, we have to get back to in retrospect. And if we uh, start a job and I say, hey, how the heck are we going to do that right? We don't want to screw around and screw up things. We want to do it right. And in the long run, in the long run, a good job actually takes less than a lousy job after you re-clean six times. <laughs> so that's about all right now. Dieter, again, thanks for your comment and thanks for your insight. Um, one question text, uh, and this is really a toss-up for either Ma Mark or Michael. Uh, what are you going to do with the results? Are you going to publish the data? Uh, well, I, I've encouraged uh, uh, Mark to take this far and wide. Uh, he's done an excellent job on this, and he's put a lot of effort into it. And it's our understanding that uh, he'll get a push here at the uh, uh, Restoration Industry Association. I believe they're going to publish uh, extracts of his work uh, in their Clean and Restoration magazine. And he's already been asked to speak at an international conference in uh, New York uh, on uh, um, biological uh, um, environments. So that's coming up in September. Cool. All right. Well, Mark and Michael, we always like to give our guests the last word. Is there any final comment uh, that either of you would like to make or anything that you would like to add? I'll let Mark go. Mark? Yeah, just one quick comment. I think the, the first thing that, that, um, that uh, Dieter said was, you know, hey, I I knew, you know, ten years ago that, you know, that whenever that the, you know, the small, you know, ten square feet of sheetrock could have billions of, of spores on it, and, you know, most of us know that. And I've heard comments from other contractors, well, gee, you're not telling me anything I didn't already know, and I understand that. The point is, is that we all pretty much knew it, and you could say that about anything that I've done in this research project. The, the issue is nobody had proven it, and, and you can know something. Uh, to your heart's content, but until somebody, you know, puts up the money and the time and 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 proves it, you know, it's just a theory whether you're you're you know sure of sure of it or not. Um, so that's what we wanted to do is is just you know prove it. And and for the contractors, you know, that aren't already you know sure of how to handle the small areas, you know, we're hoping that this will you know provide them some good information. Okay, Mark, how if our if our listeners want to get in contact with you, what's the best way for them to do that? Do you have an email that you could share with me? I do, sure. It's my first initial and last name. It's M. McLaughlin, M-M-C-L-A-U-G-H-L-I-N, at restoreall-inc, that's R-E-S-T-O-R-E-A-L-L-inc-I-N-C.com. Okay, and where's the company located? We're located in Atlanta, Georgia. Okay. Uh, Michael, any last comment that you would like to make? Uh, I would. I think the important thing, the most important thing that I learned from Mark's study is the idea that there's a lot of contractors out there that really don't think that mold is dangerous. And the numbers that we got, particularly on that the small um, uh, project without a lot of engineering controls really validated a lot of the anecdotal stories that I've heard over the years of contractors actually having health problems related to mold exposure. And it just drives me back to that, that belief that that first priority of the contractor has to be to protect themselves and their crews on these jobs. Mike, I think it's a great point. How can people contact you? Um, what's the best way? It, yep, the easiest way is just email. I, I work diligently to respond to all the different questions, and that's a, a simple one. It's M-A-P, my initials, M-A-P, at wondermakers.com. Okay. Before we leave, we want to thank today's guests, Mark McLaughlin and Michael Pinto. I want to thank my co-host, Radio Joe Hughes, our engineer, Austin Novak, the show's technical director, Dr. Dietrich Weil. But most importantly, we thank you, our growing group of loyal listeners. Please come back and join us next Friday at noon for the next broadcast of IAQ Radio.
This has been another IAQ Radio production. Call recording has been completed.